Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's guest offers a unique pathway toward identifying the right career, finding the ideal job, and developing a moral compass, the solid value system that will then anchor us in our professional lives. With a creative and engaging mix of coaching practice, management theories, case studies, and personal storytelling, today's book helps us identify both our moral compass, which relates to integrity, passion, and internal value systems, and radar, which helps us to understand organizational complexity and read workplace dynamics and situations. The compass of success is founded on a series of searching questions that will enable anyone to find their compass and radar to achieve personal success. How can I find out what my real strengths and talents are? Do I love what I do? How can I find a job with a company that truly reflects my values? What are the prices I am willing to pay for a meaningful and rewarding career? How should I define a successful career? In the midst of a volatile and uncertain world, one in which technology, AI, and digital resources are transforming the work environment, the compass and the radar allows us to pause, reflect, and consider who we are, what we stand for, and how to remain free. We welcome the author of The Compass and the Radar, The Art of Building a Rewarding Career While Remaining True to Yourself, Paolo Gallo, Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you on the show, Paolo. I thought a nice way to start is a quote I took from the founder and chairman of World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. And he said, we are at the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution, a historical era of radical transformation. We need to anchor our being to our values. I thought that was a brilliant way to set us up for the show because that is one of the true goals of why you wrote this book. Absolutely. I'm honored, of course, that Professor Klaus Schwab wrote uh, the preface of my book. And uh, perhaps I can briefly explain why this title, The Compass and the Radar, because it appears to be uh, a bit of a technological thing, but it, it's not. To me, the, the radar is the capacity to understand the big picture, the organizational dynamics, but also, you know, what's happening on the planet and how the different changes will impact uh, your role, your career, and uh, of course, your company. And then the second one is the compass, which is fundamentally goes back to a very simple question. What do you stand for? What is the thing that you believe? And, uh, and to me, as I've been director of human resources in many organizations in different countries, in the UK, in the US, in Italy, in Switzerland, these two instruments to me appear to be a good uh, symbolic meaning of uh, what you need to have uh, a meaningful career life. We often talk on this show, Paolo, about the power of words and the influence we can have on others, both good and bad. You share a beautiful, relatable story about one sentence that changed your life and was an impetus behind writing this book. Thank you, Aidan, for raising this, because uh, we all had a, you know interesting, important, and relevant info conversation, but there are perhaps some of them that really shape the way you think for the rest of your life. And, uh, and funny enough, the one that I had that shaped the way I think, uh, I'm now 55, occurred uh, literally 50 years ago when I was five. Uh, so it was a long time ago in 1969 when my father came uh, to pick me up from school the first day of school. And uh, you may think that it's not a particularly big deal because usually dads and moms go to pick up the kids the first day of school. But it was a big deal for me and my twin sister because my father at that time was living in Brazil. So he came to pick us up. He took us back home and we told him all the stories and all the details about the first day. We were so excited. Then my father took my sister first and then myself and took me to another room. And they say, you know, Paolo, I, I really appreciate the fact that you tell me all the story, all the details about the teacher, the schoolmates, and, you know, what you had for lunch or whatever. But, you know, what, what you really need to do is to think every day you return from school, if you love what you're doing, if you learn something new, and if you helped other people, because the rest doesn't really matter. So to me, uh, my own definition of success uh, relates to these three components, loving what I'm doing, the passion. The second one is uh, uh, the learning, continuous learning in all your life. And the third one, helping others. And when I say helping others, it implies having an impact uh, on the people and the communities in which you operate, uh, which to me is a real definition of success. So these three words, love, learn, and help, uh, has been my own compass of 
pretty much for the last 50 years. You talk about in chapter one about looking for our hidden treasure, that it's inside us all. And I'd love if you shared, Paolo, the story, the beautiful story about the gods of darkness that you share in chapter one. Again, this is another personal story, and uh, uh, it's about my daughter, because my daughter, when she was about four years old, uh, she came to me and she said, Dad, where do I find happiness? Well, that's not an easy question to answer, as you can imagine. And uh, if you have kids, you, you, you can imagine the, 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 the panic in trying to answer to such a profound question. Her name is Sadika. She's now 13, and I told her, let me go back to you. I'm going to write you a story. And so I wrote a story that is in chapter one, which is called the, the God of Darkness. And the story is very simple. It's basically the God of Darkness. So the nasty God met, uh, and the purpose of the meeting was uh, to find a place where to hide uh, happiness from humankind. So one of them proposed to hide uh, happiness at the top of the mountains. But one of the gods said, well, you know, eventually human, humans will be able to climb the top of the mountains and we will won't work. So the second one said, oh, let's put it on the, the, the bottom of the sea. And, you know, sure enough, minutes later, said, well, you know, eventually they will be able to go to the bottom of the sea too. So somebody said, oh, let's put it in, in, in the desert. I mean, they, they will not go to the desert. And said, actually, they will. So we, we will not be able to, to hide in the middle of the desert. So there was a few moments of silence because the different gods couldn't figure it out where to hide happiness. And then the most uh, evil of them the nasty one, the really bad one, said, actually, I did find a solution. We're going to hide happiness in the people's heart because they will be so busy in running, climbing, digging, they will not have the time to find uh, happiness in their heart. And um, I gave this story to my daughter, and since then, she knows that she has to find happiness by looking to her heart. One of the great things about doing this show is I always pick up little gems like that and impart them to my own children. And in the world that we live in mm -hmm. today, that's so fast paced and there's so much high expectations on people. And oftentimes we inadvertently pass those expectations onto our children. So when I ask my children, what did they want to be when they grow up? I've got them to think about the answer and they always say, I want to be happy. And I think that's just this kind of North Star for life that that's actually what I want to be. And now I have to find a way that actually releases that within oh. me. So it just really synchronizes well with your story. But you talk about Roger Von Ock, one of your, mm -hmm. one of your heroes, I suppose, that you talk about in the book and the four modes that we need to, to alternate between in order to find the hidden treasure. Now here, again, many, many years ago, I attended training with Roger and I, I read all these books and, uh, He's one of my intellectual heroes. I, I'm, I'm very lucky because in my life, I've always been able to work with, with, with amazing people. And if I use the tennis analogy, I played with, uh, with the best tennis player. And I'm not sure that I became a good tennis player myself, <laughs> but I did play with fantastic people. So one of them is Roger. And, uh, and uh, he has a very um, simple, when I say simple to me, is a compliment, but amazingly effective way of, uh, of understanding uh, what is your treasure that you have because everybody has one. And so basically say, you know, you, you, you need to be an explorer. So fundamentally, this is a bit of about how you get through creativity in, in your life. So exploring different options uh, in, uh, in the different things that you want to do in life. Uh, the second one, you need to be an artist. So you, you're, putting, you're putting things together. You, you start to assembling different colors, uh, different pieces in, uh, into the puzzle to, to start to have a, a consistent and cohesive view. You need to be a judge in other, in other terms. You also need to be realistic and to ask uh, people feedback about uh, whatever you, you want to do. And eventually you, you have to put your helmet and, uh, and become a warrior uh, in terms of uh, fighting and uh, having discipline and focus about uh, succeeding what uh, uh, your dream is. Uh, and so to me, it's a very, I do also training courses on, on this model. Is a nice way of explaining that there is an immense wealth of uh, potential in each of us, but there is a process that helps you to get there. And I share this process in my book. And you mentioned there judge, and judge is really important to have an external judge as well. So a tennis player, if you will, somebody else that will give you honest feedback about yourself and you remind us of a tool that I also love and use, the Johari window. Now, of course, here... Um, let me go back on, uh, on something that everybody gets in a second because it's... What I'm trying to say in my book is, is nothing 
the, the people don't know it already. I just remind them something they probably already know. I mean, everybody's watched, for example, the the program at the X Factor, no? And the X Factor is uh, all the participants have something in common, the passion for what they're doing. The point is uh, only a small percentage of them have some talent in doing it. So the first point is understanding that your passion is not necessarily your talent. Um, uh, so here, I know is a, is a bad, bad surprise for many, but, you know, I do have the passion, for example, to play tennis, but I don't have any talent. Um, and so uh, the, the external judges are people that are playing with you and they give you feedback and you need to listen to them. Uh, and so if, like in my case, uh, I realized pretty much early in my life that I would not become a tennis player, then I said, okay, I'll, I, I can still play tennis over the weekend. And, uh, and uh, you know, maybe I'll find something which I'm particularly talented, which is a bit different. Now, the Johari window is fundamentally just a very simple instrument that improves uh, self-awareness. I'm a coach. Uh, I'm coaching different people and organizations. And self-awareness is fundamentally the capacity to un understand that all of us have a blind spot. Uh, and by listening to others, you can reduce the blind spot and therefore increase your, your self-awareness, which is a very helpful way of, uh, of increasing your, your self-awareness and your understanding of yourself. You start off in the book about us, so start. let's start with us. But then you give us some ways in which to know when we find the right village for us, to understand the soul of an organization. And you talk about culture as software of the mind and mental models, etc. Listen, I, I've been head of human resources, as I mentioned, in, in, uh, in many organizations. And I estimated that in my life I interviewed something between eight to 9,000 people. So it was an amazing journey, in my view, in which I spoke with pretty much everybody and their dogs all over the globe. And I had, uh, you know, 9,000 conversations with 9,000 strangers about their own uh, expectations. And one of the things that I've noticed that people uh, in an interview setting, they, they're a bit of, it's a bit of a seduction game. And of course, I don't mean anything sexually, but in terms of, oh, let me show the best of myself. Uh, I put my best necktie, my best dress, uh, my best smile in order to try to get that job. And to a certain extent, I understand this game because you, you want to impress people and you want to be friendly, professional, and all the rest and, and, and try to get the job. But funny enough, this is not the purpose of an interview, the way I see, the way I see. The purpose of an interview is not trying to get a job at any cost, but try to understand if that job is the one for you, if that company reflects your values as an individual. And uh, in my book, I give a 10 or 12... Uh, examples, stories, or methodology that helps people to decode the real colors of the organization because paradoxically you could end up getting a job and then within two weeks realizing that you've done a terrible mistakes. In the United States, 5% of the people resign in the first week and 10% in the first months. So what does it mean? That, you know, they won the game of uh, getting a job, but they, they got the wrong job. And so I, I, in my book, I'm trying to be very practical by giving hints and uh, an indication to say, well, lo look at this. You will understand quite a lot in, uh, in, uh, about the corporate culture. And, uh, and so you will find out that this job is the one for you. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons I reached out to you, because I love this idea of understanding where you're going before you go there and to see through the words on the wall, the mission statements, etc., that don't often ring true. And you talk about several factors, individualism, inequality, power, distance, and uncertainty, avoidance. And this one, the last one, uncertainty, avoidance, really spoke to me because if you're a change maker or an innovator within an organization, oftentimes you will go to a place and they put the best foot forward, as you say, and you believe they say, oh, we want change, etc." but nobody's willing to change. And then you feel like you've made a huge mistake. And the worst thing you can do is actually stay. And oftentimes people stay because they are afraid of what people will think about them, how it will look on a CV, etc. Indeed, indeed. Again, this uh, I'm using uh, a methodology that was developed by Gert Stede, which is, uh, he has won the Nobel Prize many years ago, I think in the 80s, uh, uh, about these studies, which is fundamentally a series of dimensions that helps to decode the corporate culture. And here, again, what, what I'm trying to say without sounding academic is simply to say, listen, you know, just don't don't be fooled by an elegant web page don't be fooled by you know a bullet point on a on a on a on a, on a job description trying to go deeper trying to understand exactly what they mean let me give an example 
They said the company put on the com- statement, uh, value statement, uh, diversity and inclusion. People say, oh, great, fantastic. Then you go and you meet uh, a panel of 16 people, all of them men, all of them British, all of them age 50. Well, then it's kind of difficult to understand how they relate to diversity if everybody looks the same. And so, uh, or Italian or American, I, I don't care about the nationality, but the point that I'm making is to say, try to understand the difference between uh, if there is a difference between what they claim being themselves and what they do. So uh, I don't want to quote uh, the, the example, but right now I'm, I'm consulting with an organization that have uh, uh, 18 people as a managing director, so 17 of them are men, and only one of them is, uh, is a woman, for a position which incidentally is kind of irrelevant. So when they put on their webpage diversity, I, I'm not so sure they really mean it because the... <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> fundamentally, they're doing pretty much. Oh, oh you know, I'm, I'm picking the, the example of diversity, but there are many others. I mean, let me remind everybody that uh, the statement uh, of uh, uh, of some companies that went bankrupted was uh, integrity. And uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about integrity, but then when you end up that uh, the company was Lehman Brothers, that uh, they end up uh, bankrupted and fundamentally ruin the financial world and uh, almost bring taking the, the the planet to the brink of collapse so well you know they had a statement as a as a integrity well that that was not the case so here here is not about being uh let's say pathologically sick and to think oh my god everybody's lying but simply to say do your homework and try to understand how do you do it observe look at the web page look talk to people that worked over there and say how, how did it go contact somebody on linkedin to say hey listen dear pal understood you work over there I got a job offer. I'm, 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 can you give me your honest feedback? Go on glassdoor.com. So do a bit of homework. And so spend more time in analyzing the organization and less time in seducing the organization. And if you do this, I think you're going you're gonna to find out uh, confirmation that this place is for you, in which case, fantastic. Or maybe having some serious doubts uh, and, uh, and then you don't show up. You mentioned some great tips to observe the size of offices, to hang around the lobby of the building. And you coach us how to pose questions, especially in the interview. And as you said, many of us approach an an interview as being questioned and to get the job. But it's actually our job, especially in the buoyant job market that we're in today, to actually interview the company. Yeah, in fact, I tell you, now I I left uh, the the corporate world, so I'm not uh, on the other side of the desk asking questions to candidates. But for about 10 years, I started my interview by asking a very simple question, which, which is, which question do you have for me? And 90% of the, of the candidates they were knocked off immediately because they were there ready to recite a part when in reality I wanted to find out if these people were interested in learning more about the organization. And a lot of people were like, well, I, I, I don't have any question. Or, or, or maybe they ask a very, very, very simple question or, or shallow questions. So here, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is... Uh, when you go for interviews, make sure that you go with a six or eight a meaningful question that you really want to learn and to understand rather than just impress. And uh, because that's fundamentally the way you learn about the place. And in, I'm using an analogy, perhaps it's politically correct, but it's, I think it's meaningful. It's like having a date. You know, when you go to a date, you want just to impress the person. You go for a date, you want to understand more about the person. Because if you want to impress, okay, that's, that's a different game. But if you want to know more about this person, you probably have a better conversation, a better understanding of the person is the person for you. Another thing you suggest is to interrogate how people in positions of power got there, because this tells you a lot about an organization. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, these are very simple things that everybody can do. Uh, look at the top managers of your organization. It could be a university, a corporate, or whatever, and ask yourself, how did they get there? Very simple. If the answer is, well, they are qualified, uh, they achieve results, uh, they have a fantastic academic background, uh, they're credible, they have integrity, well, that's an indication that in this organization, you have qualified people. And I'm going to quote one, for example, CERN here in Geneva. Uh, there are the best physics in the world. Uh, there are 12,000 uh, scientists. Uh, and the person who's running, Fabiola Gianotti, is just an amazing lady uh, with a fantastic uh, brain, uh, passionate about uh, science. And when you work over there, I'm not saying it's a perfect organization. I'm saying that, why well, you don't go there if you're not qualified, if you don't know what, what, what the job is all about. But if you go to an organization where 
you see that you know the people pointed out the friends of the of the chairman and uh, you see some family members in the, the executive committee and uh, you know well then 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 you probably have a different different take about uh, about uh, meritocracy and uh, and therefore you should, that should be a red flag in your decision to get there i wanted to zone in on a, another fantastic point you made which is where we ask ourselves is this a new position because in this world where there's many, many new positions or, you know, heads of innovation or entrepreneurs and residents, et cetera, most of us, including me in the past, thought this was a very good thing and that I could shape the role and, you know, I had free reign. And as you call out, we can often step on the toes of others because the role is not defined. Yeah, listen, it's very simple. I mean, let's say that you go in and buy an apartment tomorrow and then the question is why the apartment is on sale. Uh, so you ask a question, and then maybe it's a fantastic deal, or maybe you realize that the apartment is just beside, uh, I don't know, a chemical plant, and uh, you can hardly breathe, and that's the reason why it's for sale. So the same with companies, okay? So when you go for for for, for a position or a, a role, try to understand why that role is available. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but you, you need to do some homework. So this is the due diligence that you should be doing when you look for a job. So example number one, the the, the person, the former incumbent, Resign. Okay, why did he resign? Oh, the former incumbent was promoted to a higher level. Great. Would the former incumbent still, let's say, uh, you know, uh, interfere with with a new person? Or is a new position? Great, fantastic. Maybe it's a great opportunity. But what does it mean? A new position is is has the organization defined that role? Do you have a budget? Uh, are the boundaries between the new position and the former position clear? So. You need to do a bit of homework. Uh, that's an example that, for example, I, a mistake that I've done in my career. So I've done a lot of mistakes and I've learned a lot in which I took a job in, in an organization. Uh, and then you realize that uh, when I arrived that actually nobody from that organization has applied for that role. And, uh, and I was surprised because on paper it looked a very prestigious role. And then people said, no, 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 freaking way. Nobody's going to apply it because, you know, nobody's lasted more than more than nine to 12 months since that role. So you fundamentally, on a, you're, <laughs> my secretary told me, you're already a walking dead person the first day in which I showed up. So that was not a nice way of starting <laughs> my new job. <laughs> uh, luckily, I resisted five years and I think I have been done a bad job. But, uh, you know, it's, it's quite important. It's if a position is available and nobody from the organization is applying, why? Uh, well, it's like going to a restaurant in which uh, there is a, you know, Nobody's eating the food prepared by the restaurant, so you, you probably need to <laughs> you probably need to wonder why nobody eats the food that you guys yourself prepare, and why you expect people to eat it. So this is is not about being negative; it's about being mindful and do a, a, a meaningful, let's say, um, uh, research and due diligence in order to take a decision that is based on facts uh, and evidence rather than the, the the game of seduction. And there's another great due diligence we can do, and you share how we should look for five numbers regarding the organization you mentioned one of them already which is diversity again uh, here um it's relatively simple let me give an example you have two two job offers on the table both of them same same job offer same money so there is no difference same title same role same position but in company a turnover is a uh, 40 percent in company b turnover is six percent which one would you choose uh, well, that's pretty obvious that you should go for the 6% because 40% turnover means that people don't want to stay in that organization. There's something fundamentally wrong in this organization. And the, uh, let me give you maybe two examples. The turnover at McDonald's is 320%, meaning that every year they have four people flipping burgers. So this organization where people go and they walk away within a few weeks huh, because, you know, nobody really think about a career at McDonald's. They probably think about, you know, stay there for a few months and walk away when uh, I find something better. But if turnover is, let's say, 6 8 or 10% is a healthy turnover, people come, stay for a period of time, and then walk away. So the turnover, to me, is an indication of how well people are feeling by working in this organization. That's just, just one. Another one, average age. The average age at Alibaba is 23. The average age at the United Nations is 47. I'm not saying that one of the two is better than the other, but it should give you an indication if you feel particularly comfortable in one place rather than the other. So uh, again, this goes back to what I said in the last few minutes. Do some homework uh, before accepting a role because eventually you're going to spend 40, 50, 60 hours per week, probably for a good number of years, 
and has to be a good decision because if it's not, you're going to pay a price. Now we've identified the village for us. So we've identified our values meet the values of the company. We are now in the interview role. One of your eight to 10,000, was it eight to 10,000 people? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of your eight to 10,000 people. I thought this was really interesting because we don't understand there's a framework behind the interview techniques. And you mentioned two that I thought we should mention, which is the behavioral evaluation and then stress test techniques. These are very two basic, um, let's say, methodology used by by people that met you. But the people that are unqualified, they don't know the job. They just go through the the motion and say, "Oh, what have you done ten years ago, five years ago? What do you want to do next?" Blah blah blah. So, the, if you have that kind of interview, it means that the recruiter is not particularly qualified, or or, or is not taking any 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 time to read your CV. But there are fundamentally two methodologies. One is called the behavioral one. The second one is a stress one. So the behavioral one is fundamentally they put you in front of uh, real cases and to understand not so much the technical answer, but the behavior that you uh, display in that specific occasion. And so an example could be, well, dear Paolo, can you tell me, if you've been direct to human source, can you tell me you know, your experience uh, when uh, there was a restructuring the organization? And then you're trying to understand if the person was able to maintain, a, let's say, a cool head, uh, you know, a balanced view, uh, how he manages stress and otherwise. So the behavioral one is something that is, to a certain extent, entering to the psychological behavior of individuals in, in, uh, in highly charged situations. The stress interview is a, a rather irritating methodology, which fundamentally has the aim to destabilize the candidate in the interview. And uh, I, I put on an example of, uh, which I think was funny to, to write, uh, of a fake interview with Obama, of course. It's totally fake because I never interviewed Barack Obama. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's just an example of uh, the methodology that some organizations are using uh, in constantly destabilizing people and fundamentally observing how they behave in a very stressful situation. I don't think it's a fun way of interviewing candidates because it's actually very irritating, including for the interviewers, but it's very effective to see how people behave in a stressful situation. So the books gives uh, some uh, indication how, how to tackle this situation and how to be successful in this interview. And we'll come back to behavior because it's really important. You talk about oftentimes we judge ourselves by what we do, but often it's how we do things that gets us the role and gets us promoted and gets us further opportunities within an organization. We'll come back to that one because that that's a little bit later. But an important thing that comes up next is salary negotiation. And as usual, you give a mountain of information. And I'd love to share the three typical mistakes we should avoid, the anchoring effect, the halo effect, and the ladder effect. Basically, again, uh, one of the very intense moment uh, in, in a career is when you negotiate a salary or promotion and uh, and these kind of things. And uh, one of the things that I noticed is it just uh, goes back to behavioral science, which is I is widely used in my in my book uh, to explain some of the concept. The the anchoring effect is fundamental when they said you're making uh, I don't know thirty five thousand per year, and then you're fixed to say oh, I I want to get a job for forty five thousand. And sure enough, you get one for forty-five thousand, and some people say, "Great, fantastic! I got you know, uh, you know, a great increase, and um, I'm very happy with that." Uh, point is, some of the people may miss uh, other components. For example, I don't know, they don't have a pension plan. Uh, numbers of vacation is reduced. Uh, they don't give you, I don't know, health insurance, or you have to travel two hours to get to the office. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to say, people, you know, evaluate all the package in which there are some financial components, but there are all the components that should probably help you to take the, the best decision. And some people are fixated with a certain number. They get the number, they're happy. And then maybe two months later say, damn it, I, I, I got a bad deal here because they are not, this is not included. This I have to pay for. Or, or maybe financially is still a better, better deal, but they have to travel two hours. I remember when I was in London, a guy accepted a job in Brighton. The guy has to wake up at 4.40 in the morning to show up in Brighton at, uh, at 8. And after two months, he came to me and said, Paolo, can I come back? I took him back because he was a wonderful guy, but the guy did a wonderful <laughs> mistake in accepting a job for more money, only, only by forgetting that he should have spent about five hours per, per day commuting. And within two months, the guy was, was fundamentally exhausted. And Paolo, I loved your suggestion when you get asked, everybody gets asked this one, what's your salary expectation? 
This is another tricky question that organizations ask. Um, and, and my advice is uh, don't answer because that should be the one telling you what they're supposed to offer. And, and so I, I, I invite people to be, again, not completely silent, but to say, listen, you, I'm sure you, you've done some survey analysis in the market and, and you know how much the, the, the job is, uh, is valued. So can you tell me more? So push back and try to get the answer from, from, from these people. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm inviting people, I know it sounds a bit arrogant, but I, I, I mean it sincerely, uh, to, 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 to draw a line below which you're not prepared to go. Um, because, uh, when, uh, when this is the case, uh, then people try to buy you cheap and that's usually not nice uh, to, to start the work feeling that you've been cheated on the salary. So be clear, wait uh, for them. And, uh, the, the book gives some indication how to negotiate and how to conduct uh, this uh, conversation, which is usually the last one before you enter into. You mentioned there your ex-colleague and the Brighton story. You rightly mentioned loyalty and trust are really important and tenure within the company. But I thought here about the shift that we're seeing in the labor market to shorter tenures in businesses. Because, for example, I left a role after eight months and I was concerned how it looked on my CV. And after a while, I was kind of going, I actually don't care because it was a really bad fit for me. But what's your take on that? Somebody who's moved into job. And you, you do tell us in the book, there's a 50% turnover within the first six months in a lot of roles and, and it's kind of hidden or swept under the carpet now here again a lot of people and, and in a way with some good reasons they, they feel the rule of thumb is to say listen uh, you should stay in a job three years uh more than three less than five and to a certain extent there are some truth attached to to this uh, uh let's say time bound kind of assessment but it's not the only one. The, the, the real one is to say, my professor at university told me, whatever job you take, uh, fast forward three years, look back and, and, and try to realize uh, what have you learned? Have you increased uh, your, your value? One of the things that I said in my book, which is uh, some people may, may be surprised, but I say, don't try to increase your salary, try to increase your value. These are two different things. Okay, let me give you two examples. Example number one, a person that is making 200 promoted to a job to 400, uh, but his qualification remains the same, his knowledge remains the same. And the job market said that the, the market is, let's say, 300. So the person is paid uh, uh, 25% more because now making 400, but he's double his salary. Person number two, making 200, not a promotion, but he got a fantastic stretch assignment, he's learning a new language, and he's learning about a new product. Two years later, which one worth more on the market? The guy's making 400 or the guy's making 200? The guy's making 200, of course. Okay. So what does it mean? That this guy would be probably able to get another job for much more, while the second person is stuck because he's making much more money than that what the market pays and he is not qualified to do that job. So person number two has a lifespan of about two to three years max. Person, number one, person number two probably can jump ship and, and get a better deal in another place. So I always tell people specific at the beginning of the career, maximize your value, your knowledge, your flexibility, your learning agility, your competencies, uh, your languages, your experience, your projects, your, your, your client uh, exposure, your, your product exposure, your, your, your technology understanding and all the rest, because that will increase your value. Uh, the money should come, and if it doesn't, uh, you can probably walk away and get a better deal elsewhere. At this stage, we've followed your advice, we've read your book, we've got the role, we're in the company. Now we need to meet the locals, Paolo, as you say. And as you say, when you enter a jungle, you need to understand which are the dangerous animals in the organization and which ones should we should avoid. And you tell us about the great story of Captain Tasman. Now here, um, yeah, it's actually a true story. Uh, that happened many years ago. Fundamentally, is the first uh, ship that ever landed in New Zealand. Um, they came. They, they arrived in this uh, uh, in this northern part of New Zealand, uh, and with uh, expectation to to become friends with the locals. And uh, and uh, sure enough, they arrived close to the shore and they start uh, exchanging glances and uh, some some you know some words. I mean some sounds. And they and, and then eventually the, the locals uh, 
um, they were not so happy to see these people over there and uh, they assaulted the, the ship, they killed some of the people and the captain has to sail away very fast and uh, for about 75 years nobody has ever returned to New Zealand until, uh, uh, until uh, the next one. So this is just um, a small story that I, that I, that I say, which is uh, don't make assumption about the locals. Try to understand who they are. And when I say the locals, I mean people that are currently working in this organization. You need to gain their trust. They're not bad people. Eh? I'm not saying that people who work in organization are bad people. I say you need to gain their trust. For example, right now I'm coaching a guy in an organization. He's very young. He's uh, in the mid-30s, and he has seven direct reports, all of them above 50, and all of them have been in the organization more than 15 years. So this guy is probably is, is having some challenges in uh, gaining trust from locals they probably believe they are more qualified than he is. And so he's, he's, he's not having a, a, a you know, walk in the park right now. So understanding the locals, understand the culture, trying to gain the trust, uh, try to enter with humility. I put at the beginning of this chapter a very simple quote, which I think is very important to say, first seek to understand and then to be understood. So fundamentally at the beginning, try to ask questions, be humble, remember people's name. And then visibility, you can gain trust. Uh, it's important to gain the trust of the locals when you enter into a village. This is important, that one you mentioned about the humility, because oftentimes when you enter a company, you want to make an impact. I often think of it like it's in sport where you come off the bench or you get your first opportunity and you like want to make an impact on the game. And people, there's this kind of fine line between making an impact and overly making an impact where people turn against you. And you mentioned one of your own stories where you went in and you were a little bit critical of the organization you joined. As I mentioned, I've done a lot of mistakes and the mistakes are a great opportunity of learning, as we know. But when you do them, they're painful. And one of the mistakes I've done it was at the beginning of my career, which, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, it was at the World Bank in which uh, my manager, you know, we started in a beautiful, positive way, of course. And then, uh, he said, listen, well, I remember the, the number of people were about 50 people in the team. I was, uh, you know, one of the people reporting to him with a small team. And he said, listen, I don't think uh, these people are too efficient. Uh, so can you, can you do an analysis and you tell me, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And, uh, not that I, so I did do this analysis. I sent the paper to him. He never responded. So I went back to him and said, can we talk? And, uh, and then he said, oh, I don't have time. So eventually we end up in the team meet with all the 50 people there. And he said, oh, Paolo, sorry, can you share the result of your analysis with, uh, with, with the team? I said, well, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I can, maybe we can talk one-to-one. -one. I said, no, no, just, just sharing. We are very transparent. And I told him what I learned, which is, was true, technically. And then you realize why I got into trouble. But I said, listen, what I'm hearing from them, that you're, they're spending 40% of the time uh, meeting with you and writing paper to you. And therefore, there are very little time to do work. So you should try to ask less and to help more. That was fundamentally my 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 sentence of to death <laughs> because I fundamentally I, I said in front of 50 people the problem is you yeah uh, which is technically I was correct uh, but uh, politically it was a suicide so here um, I was 27 uh, 28 or something so I, I gave myself uh, uh, <laughs> permission to do the mistakes when you're below 30. But uh, this is an example of uh, things that you should not be doing. That doesn't mean hiding the truth, uh, but uh, means uh, finding a modality and a methodology and a timing that is appropriate for the organization. So understandably, the guy got mad and uh, he pushed me out. Uh, he removed a lot of my responsibility. And six months later, I, I found another job and I moved to another department. But uh, uh, here is simply to say, you know, uh, you can be technically correct, but you also need to find uh, an intelligent way of uh, channeling a proposal and criticism rather than being open. And that was a, a colossal mistake that I've done in my career. Yeah, and this show is for changemakers. It's one of the real pieces of gold in the book. And we often talk about a lot of failed innovations being a failure to translate into the language of the locals. And mm -hmm. you talk here about, it's basically about political intelligence. I, I was telling you off air, I worked in a public organization and one of the confidants I had there is like, Aiden, you need to learn to speak politique, right? And mm -hmm. what he was talking about is what you're talking about here is to understand the animals in the jungle. And I love to quote here about from your one of your mentors about how in every organization, there are people who work for the organization 
and people who work for themselves. And I'd love to share the matrix you came up with, Paolo, which is pure gold and very entertaining. Let's mm-hmm. share the animals of the jungle, maybe yeah. starting with the incompetent. Now here, again, I go, go back to, to this wonderful phrase of, of my colleague. Uh, and, and he said, a few days after I joined, it was my first job, I was 24. I said, you got power, you, know, you need to understand that people work for the, for the organization, people work for themselves. And so that stayed in my mind. And, uh, and, uh, and then I, I translate into uh, to a very simple matrix and I put animals in this matrix because uh, animals are a, a very easy way of understanding let's say, um, characteristic and uh, features of, uh, of individuals in organization. So one, are, let's put it this way, one are people that are work for the organization, but they have a very limited, uh, let's say, political, political understanding of the organization. So these are the loyal individual, the, the safe pair of hands, the people who work very hard. I call them the dogs. Uh, dogs is not in a totally, not at all in a derogatory or negative way, but fundamentally people that are very loyal, they obey, they are to a certain extent naive uh, in, in the understanding of the politics, uh, and uh, usually they are the first one to be sacrificed when there is a corporate crisis. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I received many, many emails from people who say, oh my God, I've been a dog for all my life in my organization. Uh, then on the opposite side, uh, you have people that are very astute, uh, so they know the organization, they know the politics, uh, they know the game, uh, and they work for themselves. And these are the dangerous people that, to a certain extent, you should avoid. Uh, dangerous people put snakes uh, as an animal because I don't remember meeting anybody who likes snakes. snakes. And, um, and these are people that are uh, very, let's say, focused in their own agenda. Uh, they focus on their own career and they don't have any problem in blaming people and they can play the game uh, incredibly well, uh, but at the expense of others. And then uh, a subcategory of snakes uh, are the psychopaths. And the psychopaths are, are the most dangerous category of people that you could find in organizations. Incidentally, just for, 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 for people to know, um, the, uh, there are around 1%, 1 to 1, 1 1.5% of people on the planet that are psychopaths. And, uh, and usually people at the top organization, there is a nice percentage of people around 10% of them that are psychopaths. So the psychopaths are people that have, uh, let's say, no remorse. So they treat people like uh, objects and they don't care about uh, what, 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 uh, you know, what people feel. And, uh, when you have the misfortune to work uh, with uh, some of them, uh, usually it's pretty miserable. And, uh, this book trying to give some indication about, uh, what to avoid. So in this matrix, going back to your question, I'm trying to help people to see you, you're going to find different animals in the village, in the zoo, and uh, you better understand uh, the difference between the different behavior. And so you can relate or correlate to them in differently based on their characters. And can we share the foxes, peacocks and snakes here? Because th- this really spoke to me. I worked for a narcissistic peacock. Right. And as you say, you often find yourself putting on an act just to survive. And I, I just couldn't do it. I felt so inauthentic. I felt so at odds with my true values. This is why it's so important for those people who are in that situation that you will get sick. It will affect your mental health. It'll affect your family and it ultimately affect your life. So have the bravery. And the book is so good at giving you the compass and the radar in order to make the right choice for your own life. I'm 55, as I mentioned, and uh, I had 17 bosses in my life. Two of them were psychopaths. And this, when I work with them, uh, that coincide with the most miserable period of my professional life. It was awful, awful. I, I give an example uh, that is true. They also give um, a, a sense of what does it mean. Many years ago, I was head of human social organization. And uh, I found out that a staff member committed suicide. Uh, not uh, at the office uh, at home, but it was absolutely awful. Probably the most uh, devastating day of my professional life. So I went uh, to the office of, uh, of, of of the big boss of this organization, and uh, I, I, I went to him and to say, "Listen, tragic news here, because uh, uh, so and so committed suicide." The guy looked at me for five seconds and he said, "Philip can replace him." And, uh, and I still remember this uh, as, uh, in, a, in a traumatic way because the guy couldn't care less about the fact that a person died. 
it was already focused on uh, who should have replaced him. And, uh, and then for five seconds, I couldn't reply. And he said, well, move your ass because you are the HR director. You have, you have to find a replacement. That's your job. So the emotional side wasn't even registered uh, in his mind. So when you work with a psychopath, uh, you end up working with this kind of individuals. And uh, while I think uh, you can find a way to work with a narcissistic individual, because fundamentally they just want to be on, on stage all the time and uh, is, 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 is frustrated, but it's not devastating. Uh, when you work with a psychopath, uh, it could be in the long run uh, a tragic choice to continue working with them. And therefore, it's better to leave or, or to find different arrangements uh, and avoid these kind of people. These people are toxic. They're killing people. They're killing organizations. There's a beautiful book called Dying for a Paycheck by Jeffrey Pfeffer that explains and gives the granular evidence of working with organizations and with people that are psychopathic and toxic. And as you say, we, there is a pact we make with the devil and there's a price we pay for a prestigious career. And here you mentioned the tragic story of the late KPMG CEO, Eugene O'Kelly. You quoted one of my favorite books called Chasing Deadlight uh, that used to be the former uh, CEO of uh, KPMG. The first line of the book, uh, which I know by heart, uh, to say I've been given three months to leave, I was lucky. And, um, you know, you read this, the, the first line, you stop reading the line and say, hold on a second, this fiction or what? In reality, it's a true story of this guy that I've, I worked as a phenomenal career in his company, a very prestigious company. And then uh, he had some headaches, uh, etc. And so I go to the doctor and the doctor said, yeah, actually you have a brain tumor. There's nothing we can do. You have three months to leave and that's it. So he started writing the book the day in which is, he learned that he has three months to leave and sure enough, dies after 93 days. So regrettably, the doctor was um, bloody right. And it's an unbelievable, beautiful book in understanding um, what, what is actually meaningful in life and uh, what is important and how we say goodbye to all the people in his life. And there is a part of the book that struck me because uh, um, uh, the guy was is Irish and, uh, and uh, was working in New York and he said, well, my wife was working in New York too, just a couple of blocks from where I was living, working. And I realized that in 28 years, I never had lunch with her because we enter into our offices, we work like crazy and we meet back home uh, in the night. We never had lunch in 28 years. When I read that book, uh, at the time I was working with the world, for the World Bank uh, and my wife was also working for the World Bank and I realized that sure enough, in seven years, I never had lunch with my wife too. So I immediately called my wife and I say, from now on, every Friday, we, we like Japanese food, uh, we're going to have sushi and uh, in a nice uh, Japanese restaurant close to the World Bank. And sure enough, for three years, every Friday at 12 o'clock, I was meeting my wife, uh, having lunch, uh, enjoy one hour of, of, of tranquility and, 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 and good conversations, enjoying the food that we like, and uh, return back to the office at 2 o'clock. So I decided to take two hours lunch break because I never take a lunch break. And uh, that was, uh, to me, a wonderful gift that I received from this book to realize that uh, you need to have uh, lunch and time with the people you love and uh, because that's what really matters. So there's a huge cost on our relationships and you bring our attention to that to open our eyes. And it, it, there's another part here because you mentioned top CEOs, etc., many of whom you've coached and worked with, but it can be very, very lonely at the top and oftentimes they don't know who to trust or who to talk to. As I mentioned, I've been very lucky that I work with uh, amazing people in amazing organizations and uh, the European Bank, the World Bank, the IFC, the World Economic Forum. Therefore, I, I had the good fortune to work with uh, uh, people that to a certain extent are shaping the planet, uh, the policymakers, the Nobel Prize, the CEOs, uh, the prime minister, the ministers, the academics. So I, I've been exposed and I work with, with them for, for 20 years, actually more than this. So uh, in a way, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, the second question is, uh, how these people, the happiest people, the, the most content people on the planet? Because if you think about uh, the conventional definition of a successful career, is you've got to be at the top of the organization to be successful, or at least getting close to the top. Um, in reality, I work with all these people for 20 years, and uh, I guarantee to you, these are not at all the happiest people on earth at all. They're stressed. Usually, or most of the time, or frequently, let's put it this way, they have a, 
very difficult family situations. Uh, I don't know if they sleep at night and they're constantly terrified to lose uh, election or maybe a vote of confidence from the board and to be kicked out uh, within minutes. And you see this happening, you know, every, every, every moment. I mean, look at the political situation in Europe right now, and, uh, uh, which is a pretty much a disaster in, in everywhere. So why well, I'm telling you this, because uh, this forced me to think, uh, is really climbing and getting to the top uh, the real measure of successful career? And uh, in my book, of course, I provide uh, a different, uh, in my view, more meaningful alternative. Also because these people are lonely. They are surrounded by yes-men, usually. Uh, and uh, frankly, I, I, I don't see these people particularly happy at all. I mean, I know it sounds a bit of a generic um, uh, statement, but uh, meeting and working with them for 20 years has forced me to think uh, that perhaps successful career can't be measured by power, money, visibility, and, uh, and, uh, and this kind of thing. And you mentioned they're being surrounded by yes man, and we talk often on this show about groupthink and the avoidance of groupthink and critical thinking. But you shared the great story of Jerry Harvey's organizations as frog yes. farms. Now, this is an article that I invite everybody to to read. Uh, it's available for free on the internet. So, organization is a frog farms, uh, and frog is written P H rather than F uh, for reason that you will find out. Uh, which is fundamentally what does it mean uh, when uh, you conform so much to the views of the organization that you forget to have your own. Um, and it's fundamentally the price that you pay to, to, to adapt, uh, to conform, uh, to say yes, sir, even if you disagree. And here, that's a difficult game here because you can't be constantly against the organization because then you're the wrong organization or you're the wrong person, but you cannot totally conform every single time, every single moment. And there are studies that have been done uh, over the years by, you know, Phil DiBardo and other rest, uh, the Stanford uh, prison experiment, uh, the Milgram experiment, that, that explain the danger of conforming when you actually you give up your own values. So I'm, 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 I'm cautioned people to say, you know, be careful and uh, don't pay a price that is too high for your integrity to adapt to organization. You warn us here about blind obedience and what we're willing to do to stay in the role versus actually saying, actually, that's at total odds with my own values. And it's, it's so validating when you stand up for yourself. And I've read about this when you actually stand up for yourself and you stand up for a bully. If you don't, you never really forgive yourself. You'll always look back and go, I should have done that. I should have done that. And, you know, I hope maybe this, when if somebody hopefully doesn't end up in a situation where they have to, but if they do, they stand up for themselves, even if it means leaving the company. But here you tell us about a great story, which is mind-blowing of your own experience where you had to just actually go, this is at total odds with my values. First of all, just to be clear, I, I've been fired uh, once because uh, I refused to do something that to me didn't make sense and uh, to me was also ethically questionable. And uh, when I was challenged, I insisted on my own views. I, I, that was my last day at the organization. So at times you do pay a price, but quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of happy I've done it, even if that moment I didn't enjoy the process. Here is simply another example, which I, you know, many years ago, I got a job offer for an amount of money that I would have not imagined. And then uh, as soon as I arrived, they told me, well, actually, your real job is to get uh, 10,000 people out of the door within a few, few, few months. And if you do this, uh, this is a million dollars for you in addition to a million dollar salary. So on one side, uh, I could have put $2 million in my pocket in eight months, which is a huge amount of money that I've never seen in my life. Huh? On the other side, I would have uh, you know, probably lost my own soul by doing something that I detested, something that I didn't feel was appropriate uh, in an organization with methodologies that were close to be Nazi. And, uh, you know, I didn't sleep that night. I read the day after, I said, you know, sorry. Good news, you don't have to get rid of 10,000 people, only 9,999. The, the big news said, I'm one of them, goodbye. And uh, I took the flight back home, and uh, my wife was surprised. And, uh, and there was a day in which I remember watching TV, and I was in London at the time, and uh, C um, uh, BBC started the news to say, there are 3 million unemployed people in UK today. And I thought, actually, there are three millions and one, and the one is me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, uh, 
So I, I was terrified, quite frankly, because uh, that was uh, shortly after my daughter came to our life and uh, my wife uh, stopped working to take care of my daughter. We, we bought a small apartment. I was paying a big mortgage. And I get, get to confess, I, I, I didn't sleep for probably a couple of months, concerned about my life. But then, uh, quite frankly, I'm, 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 I'm happy I've take the, taken this choice and uh, I've done mistakes, but I didn't sell my soul. As you say, it's not difficult to build a career, but it's complicated to build a career while remaining true to yourself. And let's dig into that a little deeper because you say you've always been struck by the low correlation between results, talent, and progression within an organization. There is a story of, um, you know, there's a chapter called Do You Believe in uh, Santa Claus, um, uh, which, um, you know, is fundamentally, let's put it this way, um, Try to avoid the idea that you progress in organization only exclusively because of merit. Uh, there are many other factors that enter into the equation. Some of them are legitimate, some of them are not. So you need to uh, perhaps uh, um, mature and understand that there are different criteria in the organization, and some of them are not particularly pleasant to hear. Uh, so you 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 need to be mindful and. Uh, and, uh, and try to understand if it's still the game for you. And it's really important to have some filter or framework to evaluate if we should stay in a, a business or not. And you shared the results versus behavior matrix, Paolo. This is interesting because this is a way to actually plot our thoughts out and make it objective. I share in an instrument that is used uh, in many organizations, including some that I worked, uh, in which people, let's say, contribution, uh, or performance is evaluated on two fronts. One, what you do, and the second one, how you do it. Uh, and this is important, and I, I, I believe that how you do it is probably even more important than what you've done. So let me give you maybe a simple example. Let's say you're a phenomenal salesperson, you sold uh, more cars than every, every colleague in, in the company, uh, but you, you're pretty much a jerk. You, you treat people like dirt, uh, you're shouting, blah, blah, blah. So maybe the results are great, uh, but the cooperation and uh, the teamwork, uh, the decency, the respect is not there. And therefore, you may rate very high on the what, but very low on the how. Um, on the other side, you cannot just be a wonderful guy and smiling, offering coffees and cakes to everybody and do nothing. So you cannot even think that you, you, you can just get away by, by being a wonderful person. You also need to produce. So here, it's a simple way to say to people, you know, uh, make sure that you take care of both dimensions when you work in an organization. And interestingly, uh, promotions, I, I've been sitting and decided about people for promotion for many years, are mainly decided on the how more than on the what. So the what gets you into the debate and the how gets you through the, you know, through the process to a certain extent. Meaning, uh, you know, have you established good relation with the colleagues? Uh, do people trust you? Uh, do you have integrity? Have you behaved impeccably? Uh, have, have you done things that helps the organization to progress? So don't don't play only your own game. Try to 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 play the game of the team, the, the organization, and then then you'll be fine. Paolo, we're running out of time. So I thought you worked with the World Economic Forum. You were at Davos. You have your finger on the pulse of the latest trends, the mega trends, etc. I thought in that I'll just pull out one thing, which is your own proposal of how we should live, which I really liked, which is the idea of zengility. No, zengility is, uh, is a word that I invented. I don't know how, but I just invented, uh, which is a, it doesn't exist in perhaps one day you'll find it in a, in a dictionary, but is, is a mix of zen and agility. Zen is fundamentally remaining to a certain extent detached uh, and distanced from all the mess, the noise and the changes that are occurring. When I say detached, I don't mean indifferent or not mindful, but not to be uh, constantly at the center of, of the noise, okay? So try to observe what's happening. The agility is to adapt to these changes. Um, and perhaps uh, to be very practical, you know, life expectancy has increased uh, enormously. And my daughter, she's now 13, uh, will be probably leave until uh, she's 90, 95. So what does it mean in your career? It means that when she will be finishing her university, probably she will be in the mid-20s, she will have uh, possibly 55 to 65 years of, of work in front of her. So one of the things that I keep on saying, uh, in order to win with the machine learning, you have to become a learning machine yourself. You need to become a learning machine, meaning you constantly need to learn, 
to adapt, uh, to increase your value, to increase, uh, you know, what you bring uh, to the table, the value that you give to your clients, uh, to your colleagues, to your organization, to the community, uh, in order to become and uh, to remain relevant. Because if you don't, uh, eventually something will happen and you're going to be excluded from this, this, this game, this competition and productively. Your father mentioned some wise words to you earlier in your life and posed you a question that really changed the course of your life. If now you have a chance some, for some parting advice for us, for our audience, what would that advice be? I would love to be amazingly original in telling you something completely different. And uh, But I, I would stuck to what my father told me. Make sure that you love what you're doing, that you keep on learning and you help other people because the rest uh, doesn't matter. Beautiful, Paolo. And where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, etc.? Well, the book, uh, you, you go on Amazon, you find it there, and uh, you go on uh, paologallo.net. Uh, I do coaching. I, I, I go to different organizations giving you know, speeches. And I have to say that's something that really gives me a lot of joy. I, I received, uh, since my book was released, my book was, is now available in 10 languages. Next week is going to be in French. So I had a thousand of people have contacted me. This is an amazing journey for me of learning experiences. And uh, what gives me joy is to, to see that my book and the job that I'm doing and the work that I'm doing as a speaker, as a coach, as a teacher, has given uh, perhaps some insights uh, for people to manage their own career with a strong compass and a strong uh, radar. It's been a pleasure talking to you, author of The Compass and the Radar, The Art of Building a Rewarding Career while remaining true to yourself, Paolo Gallo, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you.